0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again today on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care and the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. I'm David Warho. I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at UC San Diego and Rady Children's Hospital, and I'm hosting today's episode, which is another edition of Journal Club. On today's Journal Club, we're going to be discussing vocal cord dysfunction after pediatric cardiac surgery, and a novel way to detect it with vocal cord ultrasound. Our presenter today is Ninja Vinjaya Kumar, who was a fourth year fellow in pediatric cardiac intensive care when we recorded this episode, and is now a cardiac intensivist at Boston Children's Hospital. We also have a special guest, Dr. Jelena Uncasuan, who's a laryngologist at Texas Children's Hospital. Keep in mind that all of the resources Slides and the article that we're discussing can be accessed by our members on our website, pcics.org forward podcast. You just have to click the link to register for additional supplementary materials. In the show notes, there's also a link to the YouTube video for Dr. Ankatsu tutorial on how to detect vocal cord dysfunction via laryngeal ultrasound. It's a great video that's easy to follow, interesting, and has a ton of cases for you to learn from. Let's go ahead and get started with Journal Club.
1: Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm chairman of the senior fellows at Boston Children's. And, um, and thank you all for the opportunity to talk to you about uh, one of our uh, topics of interest. We would like to talk about vocal cord dysfunction uh, after congenital heart surgery in infants. And just to give a brief background uh, before moving on to the article that we were going to discuss on, um, uh, as you all know, uh, cardiac surgery, mor- surgical mortality is a um, uh, On the decline among high-risk neonates uh, over the course of the past few years. And uh, there's been a focus uh, to move away from primary mortality and also include other morbidities in the reporting uh, from STS. And just because of the anatomical considerations as illustrated in this picture right here, uh, surgical manipulation of the neonatal iota can directly or indirectly injure the recurrent laryngeal nerve and cause uh, postoperative vocal cord dysfunction. The vocal cord dysfunction itself enca- encapsulates a spectrum of disorders that can include um, vocal cord impairment, vocal cord paralysis or paresis, or just uh, mild dysfunction, and it can manifest as feeding difficulties, which is commonly the most uh, mo- most commonly seen symptomatology, or poor weight gain, aspiration, or an and a weak cry. And it is a significant cause of morbidity, and it, that may include a need for a feeding tube, prolonged mechanical ventilation, extubation failure, or increased length of stay in the ICU and the hospital as a whole. The current gold standard for di- uh, diagnosing vocal cord dysfunction is uh, uh, flexible nasal fiber optic examination. It, it, it is an excellent uh, test, uh, but at the cost of being an invasive and resource intensive procedure, and often involves pre planning and an additional consult and increased. There is this push for a laryngeal ultrasound as a safe and useful non-invasive alternative to uh, optic examinations, um, but it has not been extensively studied following congenital heart surgery. With that background, I'm going to delve into uh, the article of interest today. Um, and this is a publication from 2019 in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, and uh, it is titled Current Epidemiology of Vocal Cord Dysfunction After Congenital Heart Surgery in Young Infants. It is uh, work primarily done out of uh, the University of Utah um, with the collaboration of a couple of other institutions. To go into the author's uh, background briefly, um, there is dramatic differences in the rates of postoperative vocal cord dysfunction anywhere between 1% to 65% uh, that have been report- that has been reported in uh, literature. The major clinical factors that affect it uh, includes a young age, small size, and complexity of the surgical procedure, as well as the anatomical location of the primary site of surgery. The indications for vocal cord testing and study period um, are vastly different among a- existing literature, um, and that ap- affects and impacts the reported rate of vocal cord dysfunction. This particular study was a cross-sectional analysis of the Pediatric Health Information System, or the FIS, uh, discharges between uh, January 2004 to June 2014, uh, a period of about nine and a half years. And the FIS uh, is a database that is developed by the Children's Hospital Association, and uh, it retrieves data from tertiary uh, tertiary care freestanding children's hospitals in the United States. And it primarily collects patient-related administrative data and additional variables such as risk adjustment for congenital heart surgery categories. And the data that is submitted is, uh, is then subjected to like, reliability and accuracy checks and the data integrity is ascertained and uh, patient identifying information is uh, 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 de-identified um, in compliance uh, with the IRB protocols for, uh, ex- for exemption from human study oversight. For this particular study, the inclusion criteria was all patients less than or equal to 90 days at, at admission who had a cardiac surgery. And they excluded patients with uh, surgery for tracheosophageal fistula and if the primary procedure code was, uh, was for cardiac transplantation. And uh, they also excluded patients if diagnosis and procedure codes were unclear for a specific cardiac procedure. And uh, they divided the surgical procedure into subgroups. And um, if the surgical procedure involved dissection and or repa- repair near the areas of rectalaryngeal nerves, such as inter- interrupted aortic arch coarctation, uh, an orbit palliation with a BDT or uh, SANO, um, they were assigned to mutually exclusive groups. And if multiple aortic procedures were present, the procedure with the greatest risk of mortality uh, was determined as the group assignment. And those with intra arch and coarctation were further subdivided into use of cardi- cardiopulmonary bypass uh, or not. And they uh, used the, the use of cardiopulmonary bypass as a surrogate for median sternotomy uh, for the procedure. And any patients who do not have uh, surgery on the iota were subsequently assigned to other non aortic arch surgery procedures subgroup. In terms of statistical analysis, they did a logistic regression that was used to test the potential association between a vocal cord dysfunction adjusted for surgical groups and odds ratio with a 95% confidence interval. And they additionally did a stepwise forward uh, logistic regression analysis um, to uh, with a... a value of less than 0.05 considered to be significant. And uh, they used this to evaluate surgical procedures and demographic factors associated with vocal cord dysfunction. And they did a multinominal logistic regression analysis for surgical case volume, but they did note that the eventual results of that analysis was not uh, significant enough to be uh, included, so they did not include it in the final uh, manuscript. And uh, additionally, they did post hoc uh, comparisons to previous studies and compared the incidences of uh, vocal cord dysfunction and they uh, divided the surgical subgroups into uh, risk of vocal cord dysfunction as low, moderate, high and very high. Um, moving into the results from their analysis, uh, they did that infants with vocal cord dysfunction was significantly younger and 52% of infants with vocal cord dysfunction and isolated by PDE ligation had an estimated gestational age of less than 27 weeks. They did not see the, the same um, association with gestational age in patients with aortic um, arch uh, surgeries. Diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction increased uh, significantly over time from 4% to 7% during the nine and a half year study period. And the testing for vocal cord dysfunction also increased significantly, which could partially explain the increase in the diagnosis. The patients with vocal cord dysfunction approximately had a two fold longer median length of stay. And greater median hospital costs as compared to infants without vocal cord dysfunction. In this particular image from the manuscript, um, uh, they describe the differences in uh, the percentage of vocal cord dysfunction among the different surgical groups as divided by uh, each quarter. As you can, as they alluded to, um, there, there was a steady increase in the number of vocal cord dysfunction uh diagnosis as the uh, study progressed through various quarters. And the incidence was definitely higher in aortic arch uh, repairs that included the median sternotomy, uh, which they described as using cardiopulmonary bypass. The second image on the right uh, describes the percentage with vocal cord dysfunction pre- um, uh, by survival. And uh, again, aortic uh, arch uh, repairs with um, median sternotomies had the highest risk of association with that. And both uh, were statistically significant differences. Included in their supplemental data was the association with chromosomal conditions, of which autosomal deletion and other chromosomal mi- uh, microdeletions were not statistically associated. Velo cardiofacial uh, anomalies and DeJorge and Turners were the ones that were uh, positively associated with vocal cord dysfunction, m- most importantly being Dijorge syndrome, which almost doubled in incidence. And trisomy 21, however, uh, did not have an uh, increased association with vocal cord dysfunction uh, and that the difference was statistically significant. And then in terms of complications, almost all uh, uh, post-operative or um, ICU-related complications were higher in the vocal cord dysfunction subgroup. There was increased incidence of cardiogenic shock, catheter-associated bloodstream infection, postoperative infection rate. Uh, renal failure and mechanical ventilation greater than 96 hours, uh, which is not surprising given their uh, acute morbidity with increased length of stay. Uh, Among procedures, uh, the the most significant difference was, of course, the incidence of feeding tube use um, in patients with vocal cord dysfunction, that by indicating the amount of uh, feeding difficulties these patients face. And then uh, as previously uh, described, they they do the post hoc analysis with the previously published vocal cord uh, incidence. And based on that subgroup, the highest uh, risk uh, for vocal cord dysfunction was identified as coactation of iota and interrupted iotic arch and thoracic iota aneurysm, uh, which had incidences as high as 20%. And the rest of um, surgical procedures, such as tautology fellow, TGA, and uh, uh, RVTPA conduits in systemic depulmonary attrations, uh, etc., had a lower incidence of vocal cord dysfunction as opposed to direct aortic arch surgeries. And then in terms of demographic data, clearly the um, odds ratio uh, was highest in the first seven days of life and coactation repairs and uh, interrupted iotic arch repairs and thoracic aortic aneurysm repairs had the highest odds ratio of being associated with vocal cord dysfunction in uh, in terms of absolute incidence data again the highest incidence of dysfunction was in the first week of life and in terms uh, incidence of about 20 27% and and the risk uh, uh, the incidence de- de- decreased as along with progression of age so in terms of overall conclusions for this particular study, the diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction was associated with uh, substantial short-term morbidity occurring in all surgical uh, procedures evaluated. And there should be a constant effort to increase vocal cord dysfunction, which includes surgical and post-surgical um, uh, interventions. And um, uh, there is more research required to identify the optimal screening for vocal cord dysfunction and use of uh, early post-operative vocal cord dysfunction diagnosis uh, as a quality metric requires more standard definitions for both populations at risk as well as the indications for screening and a diagnosis of clinically important vocal cord dysfunction. In terms of our understanding uh, based on this incidence data and also looking through some additional data from the published incidence of vocal cord dysfunction, we at Boston decided to look further into delineating the incidence of vocal cord dysfunction and high risk population and we just began implementing a high risk feeding dysfunction algorithm and this is uh, our current algorithm that went live about three weeks ago and we screened the uh, census for a high risk diagnosis and uh, that is listed here below, including post-operative interrupted aortic arch, aortic aneurysm repair or resection, stage 1 palliation with PT shunt or uh, uh, SANO, isolated PT shunt, uh, stage 2 glen or Kawashima, uh, isolated PD ligation, correction of vascular slings and rings, and complex airway surgeries or patients with Dijorge syndrome, and... And um, if, if they are hydrox surgery and a re-operation, uh, we will consider a pre-operative and a post-operative fibro-optic endoscopy. And all of these patients will be screened in and within 72 hours of extubation and uh, and if they are weaned off positive pressure, they will undergo uh, oral examination uh, with fiber optic endoscopy. And depending on that, they will go into the various limbs, whether they have an abnormal vocal cord exam or not. And um, if they do, they are... Um, uh, assessed by our feeding uh, team for a bedside feeding evaluation, and if there is uh, concerns on that, they will go undergo a modified barium swallow exam, and based on that, they will uh, have um, interventions. If they have a normal exam, uh, they will be uh, quickly fast tracked to uh, pure feeding, and uh, that way, trying to reduce the amount of accrued morbidity and ICU that they stay. And the second part that uh, we are trying to look into is uh, establishing the uh, testing efficacy of point-of-care ultrasound in diagnosing vocal cord dysfunction and comparing it with the cold standard that fiber fibro-optic endoscopy. With that as a segue, I'm going to see if some of our expert opinionators who are who were invited to join um, would like to share some of comments on this topic.
2: Hi, everyone. I'm uh, Juliana Castellon. I am a laryngologist um, down in, down in Houston. Um, and so I just do the larynx. That's all I do. Um, and so I'm down here at Texas Children's I also do adult uh, laryngology as well with a primary focus on vocal paralysis. That is the bulk of my clinical practice and my research. So I'm actually going to um, start with a terminology quibble here. I kind of hate the term vocal cord dysfunction kind of deeply and intensely. Because to the pulmonologist, this means paradoxical vocal fold motion. And then to the cardiologist, this means vocal fold paralysis. And so as an otolaryngologist, I have no idea what I'm getting when I hear the term vocal cord dysfunction. And it also means reviewing the literature becomes very difficult because it's super messy. So I know this is common terminology in your world, but I would encourage you to consider being more precise with your terminology and trying to use either vocal fold motion impairment or vocal fold paralysis, because frankly, that's what you're dealing with most of the time, paralysis or paresis. You know, vocal fold motion impairment is a term that's coming more into vogue, but it, it encompasses paralysis and also a retinoid joint fixation, which can appear in your patient population as well as a sequelae of prolonged intubation. So, but clinically it, can, it has the same problem where the vocal folds aren't moving. Um, so vocal fold motion impairment is the terminology I use in my publications because it is more inclusive of these vocal fold movement problems, I would beg you to consider to stop using the term vocal cord dysfunction because it's very hard for your neighborhood otolaryngologist um, to know what we are getting when we get the referral. I can guess based on who's referring, but I find that I think precision terminology is key. So that's my little soapbox I'll get off. Um, and will say the one thing um, with your protocol, I would... Um, comment on is that plenty of kids without vocal movement problems have swallowing problems. And we have published on this in our cardiac population, our, our, our CVICU population, is that while there's an increased risk of silent aspiration with vocal paralysis and vocal movement problems, there are plenty of kids without vocal mobility issues who have swallow problems. So at least our protocol in our CVICU, actually the, the swallow evaluation comes first. Um, and the laryngeal evaluation later, um, we are, as you kind of alluded to, we are using laryngeal ultrasound as the primary diagnostic tool screening tool for vocal fold mobility up in the CVICU. Um, so I published a paper on this back in 2017, specifically in our single ventricle population that we used the on, and we compared it to flexible laryngoscopy. This is another terminology quibble. I know that you you're using fiber optic, um, uh, laryngoscopy. A lot of times, a lot of us are moving away from fibroscopes and we're using digital scopes. So the terminology kind of is shifting towards a flexible nasal laryngoscopy for what it's worth. Um, at any rate, we've actually published on this that flexible nasal laryngoscopy in infants is actually the agreement can be quite poor because the kids are screaming and their superglottic structures are going everywhere and you can't really see what's going on. And you're probably using other, um, other clinical signs like their clinical history and their cry strength. As sort of um, uh, that are kind of anchoring bias, right, to where you think the vocal mobility is. So um, I think that while it is the gold standard, it's actually not. It's not. A, it's an imperfect gold standard. So we have published on this the, the inter agreement, inter and intra radar um, reliability, a flexible scope. If you take away sound and history, if you purely look at the laryngoscopy, we're not that good at it. Um, so then we we also looked at ultrasound versus um, flexible laryngoscopy. And we found the agreements pretty good um, between the two. And um, as a secondary aim of that project was we looked at the physiologic impacts, their variability and their physiologic parameters was a lot less and they tolerated it well. So yeah, this is what we use in our CVIC now to screen vocal mobility. I will say that it is only for screening vocal mobility. It is not meant for evaluating strider. I will talk to our teams, you know, if the ultrasound and physical exam are non-congruent, still do a scope to try to figure out what's going on. Uh, Our radiologists actually do our ultrasounds at the bedside in the ICU. um, And radiologists like things to measure. So you can measure the vocal photoretenoid angles. And and there's a cutoff about 120 degrees that predicts a movement problem. And if you want, I published a paper on this uh, tutorial. I have a YouTube video that's free that you can learn how to do laryngeal ultrasound because i actually do my own point-of-care ultrasound in my office like in the clinic i do my own um and then at the end of that uh that video there's 20 cases for you to practice and you can measure the vocal fold to angles and you can practice interpretation Juliana, that's great can you um comment on when you're using ultrasound for screening in texas are you doing ultrasound and if it's Positive than doing a flex scope, or are you just saying the ultrasound is good enough? Move no. forward with feeding evaluation and such. Correct. Yeah, we so keep me in mind that our feeding evaluation precedes the ultrasound, at least in our algorithm. But um, yeah, I believe it. If the ultrasound is, if it says it's abnormal and if it's congruent with your exam, right? If, they're, if their cry is weak, and again, this is not a strider evaluation. Um, then I believe it. I don't follow it up with the FlexScope. And then I guess um, Dr. Lemberg was asking, do I find similar issues with accuracy of point-of-care ultrasound when the babies are crying? Yeah, if they're thrashing everywhere and crying, I think you have the same problems that you have with they're both. There's no perfect, perfect exam, but I find with the laryngeal ultrasound, like it doesn't hurt. So a lot of times we'll stick a passy in their mouth, swaddle them and they can fall asleep. And I find like... For example, I get referrals from my partners for vocal fold mobility, like bilateral vocal fold paralysis, when they do the scope awake in the kid and they're just screaming their head off, right? And I'll do a laryngeal ultrasound, the kid's comfortable and you can see the, bo- the mobility is normal. It's just so hard and they're so tense. It can be very difficult to assess vocal mobility, like what they're screaming
1: at you. Uh, Do you see any variability in um, in, like subjective or interpersonal variability with the uh, patient's edema status or fluid status?
2: I I haven't. I have not. I mean, the neck thickness matters, but for infants, it's probably not a big deal. It becomes an issue in big people and it just doesn't work well in adults. The depth of penetration, just it's not enough. And there's data in the endocrine literature on using laryngeal ultrasound to look at mobility. It's the data is all over the place. Um, and this is in the adult world. Um, and I, I don't use it on my adult patients cause I find it less reliable And it's, you know, the thyroid calcification is a problem, but it's the depth, right? The thickness of the neck In infants, it's almost never an issue. Well, we have you just to take it one step further, your sort of personal thoughts on, um, mode of feeding after diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction with aspiration and then also treatment you know things we've talked about here are injecting the vocal cords temporarily and patients that are on a little bit bigger uh, thinking about reinnervation when they get to the toddler stage Are those things that you've talked about or um, sort of have a protocol there as well so Currently, the practice at Texas Children's is it's really symptom-based. Like we do, you know, thickening if needed, pacing, um, alternate feeding methods. So we're not doing a lot of early interventions for vocal mobility here. It's really kid-driven. I will say, so I have this two-hit theory when it comes to swallow, um, is that you can take one hit to your swallow system, and most kids are going to make up for it, are going to compensate for it. So I've so, right, my practice is predominantly paralysis, right? the vast majority do not aspirate, right? They'll struggle a little bit at first, but most of them figure it out if everything else works okay, right? It's just when you take multiple hits to the swallow system, like you have a paralysis and you're super deconditioned because you had surgery, you had a paralysis and you never had time to learn the function of how to suck swallow breathe, suck swallow breathe, right? And then things start to fall apart. But for the vast majority of our kids, I mean, they're able to take PO. They may have to be paced, maybe have small nipple sizes. They may have to be thickened. Maybe they'll need an NG tube for a short period of time, but we'll discharge with NG tubes and we'll get them out in our swallow clinic. Like We'll follow their swallow and, and progress them to more and more feet, um, PO feeds. Um, so we haven't here been doing much early in injection medialization in infants. Um I've been open to it. You know, the question is whether you want to take them back to the OR for an injection of a material that's not going to last very long. I mean, our injectables are, don't, you know, like the voice gel last about a month. You know, I don't know that. I I don't, I don't know whether it's worth the risk of a 2nd anesthetic. I say this as a caveat because actually in my adult practice, so in my adult life, the other half of my life, I do a ton of inpatient vocal, vocal paralysis and cardiac patients, aortic patients, and I do bedside awake Vocal fold medialization injections on these adults while they're still in the ICU, right? Um, and our and I've published their data on this that we can improve their pulmonary toilet, we can shorten their lengths of stay, right? I'm very aggressive with my adult patients, but I don't have to put them under anesthesia. I just numb them up and stick a needle through their neck. I do a lot of laryngeal renovation. Um, I I do it's usually more for voice than for swallow honestly, because usually by the time we're doing it, when they're usually around two or three, the swallow has usually figured itself out. It's almost always about the voice at that point.
0: Thank you both of of you for uh, sticking around and joining us on the podcast and talking about this topic, vocal cord dysfunction, immobility, paralysis. (laughs) We all learned a lot today from you, Dr. Ankaswan. I'm really interested in uh, sort of the evolution of your practice. When did you first start, you know, realizing and getting confident that uh, you could rely on vocal cord ultrasound? Like how did that come about in the evolution of your practice?
2: Yeah. So it was interesting when I started here, I was a resident of PEDS fellow here. Then I went away for a year to do a laryngology fellowship and I came back. So I kind of knew the practice pattern here. And at the time, the CVICU was having us flex scope every single ventricle kid on extubation. And it seemed, but they were also really nervous about it at the same time. You know, these are single ventricle kids, fresh Norwoods. They they wanted us to scope them, but they were super anxious and it caused a lot of um, angst. And so I was like, oh, there's got to be a better way. And I had read about these older papers. Laryngeal ultrasound had been a thing like in the early nineties and eighties, and it kind of had fallen out of, it just never took off. So I read these papers, one of whom had been our previous chief. That was her, her trilogic society thesis. Um, And so I kind of talked to her and I was like, you know what, I think we should try this again. And I talked to the cardiologists in the CVICU and they were game. And so I wrote this grant to try to do this prospective study. Cause we were already flex scoping all these kids and the morbidity of adding an ultrasound was pretty low. And so I wrote this prospective study that took us three years. Um, and I was kind of learning along with the radiologist how to do these laryngeal ultrasounds. Um, and we just, you know, we just did so many and we got very comfortable. So we, we did um, 46 in our initial series, 46 laryngeal ultrasounds prospectively. Um, and I guess we became more and we wrote a couple other papers on using it for other modalities. And yeah, I guess it, after a couple of years, it felt like it became redundant with
0: the laryngoscopy. So I just,
2: I believe it unless it's something
0: weird. Um, I, I think, you know, the other thing that might be a controversial question in the ENT world would be, you know, you mentioned that you have this video teaching clinicians how to do it, you know, as a point of care test at the, at the bedside. Um, what are your thoughts about that, you know, at maybe not at Texas Children's, but at other institutions, if, um, cardiologists or intensivists are sort of going to their ENT doctors or their cardiac surgeons and saying, Hey, I just threw the probe on the neck and this kid has vocal cord dysfunction. Um, what do you see that, that practice pattern looking like in the upcoming years?
2: Yeah, I think the important thing is that if you identify a paralysis to make sure they follow up with us. Right. Cause you know, that I, I can do counseling, I can do interventions, you know, I can follow them long-term for this. Um, and then, I mean, I personally think that if the exam is congruent, you, I mean, it's there is real, right. If you and I do think, so we have all of our ultrasounds recorded up on the packs because a lot of times I like to look at it with my own eyeballs. Same thing as we record all of our laryngoscopies, like all of our laryngoscopies are available up on the packs, right? So my residents do a scope. I can look at it because even though they'll tell me something, I always look at it. So it would be the same thing. If somebody else is doing an ultrasound, I actually still want to see it with my eyes.
0: Sure. Thank you. That makes total <laughs> sense. Um, Ninja, I wanted to ask you about the protocol that you all are rolling out at Boston Children's Hospital and... I know that you're just sort of in the beginning phases of this, but um, what what was the impetus for this protocol and what have you learned so far as you've been putting it
1: together? Yeah, um, I just want to begin by thanking Dr. for joining us. I think um, uh, I just have to make a note that I did look at the videos um, as we were trying to prep for the next stage, which is we want to see if uh, uh, a a couple of us can start working on doing the point of care ultrasound. So it is very, very very helpful um, to understand the anatomy. Um, And uh, so to answer your question, David, um, um, I think. I think it started off by the number of patients that were accruing morbidity um, just because of feeding dysfunction. There was always this um, question of whether this patient has a horse cry or not, what would be the best to do a uh, uh, endoscopy, and uh, what when would we pull the trigger? Um, and there's always this question uh, I would say a mental block of like saying, oh, we have to talk to the surgeon, whether this patient has a vocal cord dysfunction. And I think uh, that is something I'm sure everyone faces when, when um, it, it is a, a particular patient from uh, a, a surgery around the iota. Um, I think, so we went in, went through a couple of iterations of this um, dysfunction algorithm. And um, I have to thank Kim Mills, my mentor uh, who kind of was like working on this before I even joined here at Boston. And uh, I think she uh, ha- had been in touch with the, a couple of people, including Dr. Ronkos one. And, uh, and and we kind of went back and looked at all the literature available and tried to identify the high risk patients and uh, presented uh, the incidence data to our surgeons and said, these patients accrue morbidity over a period of like three to five days that they that we wait on uh, post-extubation as they uh, uh, struggle through their initial phases of feeding and uh, start exhibiting symptoms. And that we initially discount as you know uh, trauma from the endotracheal tube or a vocal cardema and then eventually uh, pull the trigger on uh, uh, endoscopy and uh, and then we we uh, figure out they have uh, mobility issues of the vocal cord and then um, do a swallow study etc et um and uh, I, I think the the biggest thing we are hoping to achieve is to understand how uh, how much we can shorten uh, the length by screening all these high-risk patients, whether that increases the incidence, and also uh, whether it uh, fast-tracks these patients to get out of the ICU and reduces their length of stay and uh, uh, helps them not accrue so much morbidity, as has been noted in multiple uh, studies in literature.
0: Well, thank you again. Dr. Vijaya Kumar and Dr. Ankasawan for joining us on the podcast today to discuss vocal cord dysfunction or vocal cord movement abnormalities. And we all learned quite a bit. And I think our listeners will get a lot out of this. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And please don't forget to go to our website pcics.org to find all the information about our upcoming meeting how to become a member all of the resources that are available to members and job listings and much much more the song i don't know my grapes was used under a creative commons 3.0 attribution license